Today on the Marshall Pro Podcast, in your week in IndyCar guest episode, we have our man, the fine man, the most beautifully quaffed IndyCar driver in a really long time. That is the, not the J.R. Ewing of Seattle, the J.R. Hildebrand of Northern California. How are you doing, my man? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a thing. I mean, I figured the timing's perfect. The month of May, which has been officially moved to the month of August, not too far away. Folks I know are indeed curious about the plans of J.R. Hildebrand. You've also been a guy who has been pleasantly proactive in your social media presence of late and really honest and open and it's been so refreshing as well and i know it's this is going to come as a surprise i have heard rumor that there are some people who aren't exactly that way on social media and might actually say negative things continuing to search for evidence jerry hildebrand but uh your your twitter feed in particular has been uh, a thing that has brought some smiles so as always before we get rolling with the questions delivered by our awesome listeners. Let's say thank you to some awesome folks from Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Mr. Hildebrand, we're going to kick things off here this week with, that's right, Darren Dubois, curious, talking about Indy 500 preparations, wants to know, if there's anything you might be doing differently since the Indy 500 is rescheduled for August, heat could be more of an issue. Curious how you are approaching this upcoming challenge differently than, say, you would normal routine in May. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, definitely, I, I think you know, heat for sure is a factor. It's, it's maybe a more likely factor than it would be for May. That being said, I think it was two years ago, you know, that it was like record setting thousand degrees a day for the 500. Right. So, um, I think that's always something that we're kind of prepared for just in, in, it's in our minds, at least that we're, we're prepared for the fact that it could be, could be 50 degrees. It could be hundred degrees, you know, <laughs> like kind of just Indianapolis, like when you're, getting, getting out of the, uh, getting out of the winter basically. Um, so more, you know, definitely more likely that it's hot, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm out here in, in Boulder, Colorado, uh, definitely not as humid, but we're getting a lot of hot days. We're getting a lot of 90 plus days out here. So, um, you know, the big thing that's actually been, been really great, uh, you know, for me here, a lot of times coming out of the winter, not a lot of days that you can count on to get outside prior to, you know, in that prep phase for the month of May, um, you know, we're getting snow occasionally or whatever, um, through August and May. Um, so now, you know, definitely easier for me just to get out on the bike, go do some long rides. Um, you know, just get that kind of, you know, endurance and, and just getting used to doing, doing one thing for a long time and being able to do that outside instead of trying to figure out how to do that in the gym all the time, um, has been really nice. And so I've kind of, Turn, tune that up in my, uh, in my workout program. Um, otherwise I think it's, you know, for us, I would just say maybe more as a team, um, 
and uh, that's that's alluding obviously to uh, to Team Penske. Uh, me running with dry with with dryer again this year. Dryer and Penske bowl. Um, Scuderia Penske. Um, the uh, that you know it's it's giving us a little bit more time you know as a as a one off team. Um, you know, to focus on, on some of the things that are going on stage is going to be, you know, he's running the GP. They, they were, you know, prepping for St. Pete earlier in the year. So just, just getting everything spooled up on the team side a little bit sooner, which was, I think a good thing, um, having to diversify a little bit, getting ready for road course stuff instead of just, just the oval. So some personnel changes there, um, you know, or additions, I should say. Um, and, you know, so I think, I think for us, you know, a lot of teams made, you know, I think everybody in, in 2018 just kind of struggled with, you know, the tire and the aero package being new and it was hot and, and whatever. Um, a lot of teams made a pretty good gain, I think from 18 to, to 19, we didn't quite make that same gain just in terms of, you know, handling of the car and race trim and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, given us all a little bit more time, frankly, more than anything, just, uh, just to think about some of that stuff, getting on the sim, um, all like that. So that's, that I would say, you know, those are the two main things. Curious knowing that you and I grew up in the Bay area where snow is not a thing. How many months out of the year in Boulder are you dealing with snow? And just out of curiosity, because I'll admit I've maybe thought about, should we move to uh, Colorado as well? Uh, how many months of snow do you deal with and how much has it changed your normal routine in life? You know, it's like here in Boulder, it's not, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of right at, you know, right, right out a mile high. We're a little, a little higher than Denver, you know, by a few hundred feet. Um, you know, we get snow, you know, several times through the, through the winter, but it's at least where we're at, we just, it'll like dump for a couple of days. And then the sun comes out and it's gone within a couple of days. Um, so it hangs up in the mountains, even just, just west of us, like five miles or something, you know, we're right on the edge of the foothills here. So it, you know, you get, you get some altitude pretty quick or some elevation pretty quick, um, going west. So it's not, it's not like a super disruptive thing. We get a ton of sunny days. Um, we just don't have that kind of consistently, consistently, you know, warmer weather that you can kind of bank on to, you know, go do activity X, Y, or Z outside, you know? Um, and so it's, I, you know, I've, I've learned to enjoy it. You know, I, I was, as when I was growing up, you know, we go to Tahoe, you know, a couple of times a year or something like that and go ski or snowboard. Um, you know, but I've really enjoyed the kind of access to the winter sports. And, and like I said, I mean, at least I lived in Indy for, or something um you know compared to being out there you get kind of the same duration of like winter weather but um you know i definitely feel like we got we get a little bit more to do with winter with the winter weather out here so it's it's uh, it's not a bad mix well amen to that let's go to fun line of question i kind of know the answer to these but uh always fun to share a little bit of past that maybe not everyone knows about Let's go to our pal Trip Hazard and then a follow-up from Brian Cohn talking about, do you have any plans beyond the new 500 this year? was wondering if you had an interest in doing Le Mans, Rolex 24, sports cars in general. And then we should also throw in Brian Cohn's asking if midgets or sprint cars interest you all at some point in your career. 
So there's some folks who might not yeah. know, at least on the sporty car side, you got some, uh, got some heritage there. I done seen you drive them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, did 12 hour. Yeah. I don't know. After I won the Indy Lights championship, I guess. So 2010, um, general and racing, the tricky thing. Yeah. Genoa. Yeah. They are, uh, yeah, we do have, we do have some, some crossing paths there, Marshall. That's, that's where um, I kind of grew Tom up. Knapp. Yep. Um, uncle Tom, the, uh, I, you know, the sports car thing is interesting just because, um, you know, it's, it's obviously right, right now, but it's been kind of in the process of, you know, while I think we've seen it get, you know, the kind of current situation aside, it seems like it's been getting longer over the last years, you know, just an IMSA, you know, Scott Alfred, everybody's been doing an awesome job over there. I think over the last, we'll just say like decade, um, you know, building up the events and kind of the passion from sports car fans. And you know, they've got a lot of manufacturing involvement. Um, what's happening right now amidst this pandemic is obviously, you know, affecting everything, I think kind of equally in terms of, of, um, you know, where challenges are starting to exist, uh, a little bit out of, out of everyone's control to at least, to at least some degree. But, um, you know, the one thing that I'll just say has been, has been tricky about sports car racing from a driver's perspective is, you know, those of us that have raced in the Indy 500, even not as, even not as consistently full-time as I've been, um, you're, you're at a minimum, a, a gold driver, uh, you know, in terms of driver rating. And so just from having won the Indy lights championship, like 10 years ago, um, you know, I'm a gold. And so, uh, that, that makes some of the non-factory, you know, like pro racing teams, you know, trickier situations because there's a lot of really good silvers and so that those are just scenarios where you know like there are there are really good drivers who are silvers that are going to get that i'm going to get passed up for um for a lot of the kind of more pro pro am rides gentleman driver you know extra extra drivers on those teams um you know and the factory rides are just kind of they're they're tricky to come by um so you know, I think my interest level in sports car racing has always been high. Um, it's something that at earlier points in my career, I wish I had continued to pursue in addition to IndyCar more seriously. You know, I think I was kind of coming up at a time where even as a pro, there was a lot of, I don't know, I, I guess in, in my, I somehow just had it built into my head that you know, you needed to kind of specialize, um, you know, certainly coming up through the ranks, that was, that was very much the attitude, um, at that point. And so, um, you know, I wish I had diversified more when I was younger, just cause I think I would have enjoyed it, uh, you know, going out and doing more stuff. Um, now I'm at the point, I guess to answer the question more, more generally, I think all those things are, are interesting to me. You know, I did Pike's Peak for the first time a couple of years ago, that was an experience that I'll never forget. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've had some really awesome things start to come together for that. But, you know, for all the same reasons, everything is a little sideways this year is also maybe down for the count for another, for another season. Um, I actually had, I had some stuff lined up to do like Indiana midget week this year and looking at the BC 39 event, um, you know, that now I just haven't, you know, been able to travel and go drive the car and, and do that kind of stuff. So, 
Um, I think for the most part, if it's got four wheels, um, I even jumped on, jumped on two for some track days last year. Uh, all of that now that I've gotten to this point in my career, you know, looking back, realizing that I haven't done nearly as much other stuff as I wish that I had, um, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten a second wind to look back into it, all of it for sure. You know, another just quick thing on the sports car front is that since your driver rating, which they use to determine a lot of things in IMSA, for example, uh, where there's a requirement of having a certain number of amateur rated drivers in two, in some of the classes and uh, limits the amount of pros in those as well for you, for you and others say an IndyCar who would love to just go do more. Uh, it often requires that to be at the expense of another pro. So right. the the days of, hey, I want to go do this race. And I called a team and they said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, there, there are some policies in place that have been there for a little while. It's nothing new, but it makes it hard for you to do that because you have to find a team that has a specific need for a pro can use a pro and you know again i know you wouldn't want to necessarily knock someone out of their regular job if you just wanted to show up and do something a couple of times for your own interest so a little bit more complicated unfortunately than it should be but uh as our boy juan montoya says it is what it is (laughs) and i think i'd add to that just by saying i mean you see it especially in the gt categories you know i mean there are just a ton of super high quality, like Lamar Daytona 24 Sebring 12 hour winners available. Like there is like a, it's like a saturated market for really high quality, you know, tier one pro GT guys. Um, and a lot of whom are all are a lot of whom of, of, or of those guys are on the fence of not having a ride year in and year out. I think that just adds to, adds to the complexity, you know, for us who maybe are looking at it more as, yeah, you know, it, it, like, just like you said, it'd be awesome just to jump in for a few events here and there that they were, you know, IMSA I think still has, in my opinion, like the best mix of road courses in the U S of like any, anything by a bunch. Um, you know, it's, it, they're, they go to cool tracks. It's an appealing series from the driver perspective, but um, unfortunately that makes for a lot of supply. Um, you know, of good guys who are interested in it. As I find myself saying, unfortunately, more and more uh, these days, as long as Joey Hand is out of work, uh, it's a little hard to lobby for those who aren't full-time rock star assassin sports car drivers like Joey to have a job. Let's go yeah. to one that might have us visit for a little bit. Uh, we'll see. This is one that I appreciate. This comes in from the real M.O. And I assume that's not the real Emerson Fittipaldi, but asks, <laughs> JR, why aren't other drivers as brave as you as far as the stance on some of the latest social issues in the country? Do you think it's fear of repercussion from sponsors, political fear, disagreement. Real MO closes with saying compared to drivers and other series, the IndyCar grid seems to be quiet. Other than Joseph Newgarden 
and some others occasionally. And I went yeah. off on this for probably a half hour in my listener Q and a show, um, yesterday. So I'm probably not going to say much here, but you have stood <laughs> out and I don't mean stood out like screaming, yelling, you know, anything, but, uh, you, you have been someone willing to strip yourself bare and say, Hey, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about that. Yeah. And in ways that I think a lot of a lot of folks, racers or non-racers, might not be willing to open themselves up. So, any thoughts on why you do happen to be one of very few in our world of open wheel racing who's done more than post a black square or say something almost a month ago, but nothing since? Yeah. Um, I guess I, so I think there's a couple of like bits of context that I can, I can maybe just provide from the perspective of a driver, um, you know, which is, uh, so I think there's two things that are kind of, well, one thing that's relevant just for, for any of us, I think across all of motorsports, you know, carrying over to other sports, which has been, you know, for the longest time, you know, we have just been not, not instructed in any like official manner, but there has just been the sense that you should stay out of these things. Um, like that it's, that it causes more harm than good. Um, we all know that the, you know, um, negative voices online and on social media are far louder uh, make themselves far louder and more abrasive um, than the positive ones a lot of times. Um, and I think that's, you know, I mean, I can, I can tell you uh, just from the experience that I've had over the last couple of days on Twitter, it's, it's really hard to keep yourself checked and give yourself or provide yourself some perspective of like, is actually a really minimal percentage of the reaction to what I'm saying here is, is negative. It just so happens that the people that are providing that act, that reaction are the loudest ones. Um, and so they're the ones that you are reading and they're the ones that in response, you are kind of like feeling, uh, reactive to. Um, and so I think there's a lot of this, that this is just kind of, new, new territory to be in a spot where suddenly lots of athletes and lots of public figures that have stayed out of these things in the past are, um, either feeling more comfortable or feeling like it's more necessary, I guess I would say at this point to, to speak up. Um, and it is, there is no doubt that this is, I mean, no doubt in my mind, at least that this is just a fundamentally different uh, you know, whole sort of situation by an order of magnitude and then some probably compared to anything that we've seen dealt with, been around, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Um, I guess the other part of it that I would say just more specifically on the IndyCar side is, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, if you could, we could talk about that piece of, you know, why that, why it's this way, you know, that's almost like a different conversation, but, um, I'll say like compared to NASCAR, um, and in some ways compared to formula one, you know, IndyCar does not have 
like that central current sort of like galvanizing situation that's happening or, or, or person or entity um, that this really clearly applies to Um, where NASCAR, you know, has that with, with Bubba and the Confederate flag situation um, formula one. And I, and I, I, I frankly say, I think motorsports on a broader scale because of it um, has this, you know, through Lewis and Lewis has been super outspoken um, through this period. And frankly, I applaud the hell out of Lewis for being as outspoken as he's been just generally over the last few years about all kinds of different things. Um, I've loved seeing that, um, you know, and seeing that come out of him and seeing him use his platform. um, I think thoughtfully to talk about things that matter to him. Um, And so I think, I guess, so the concept to back up, I think the fact that IndyCar does not have, there is no, there is no current black driver in IndyCar. Um, in, in addition to the fact that, you know, not very, uh, uh, as a, you know, I'm an American guy that grew up in the United States. These things as a part of my, the, I do look at these things, racial inequalities, racial injustices, back to the civil rights movement, slavery before that and everything in between as a part of my history. Whereas I guess I could see where for guys that aren't from the United States, even if you're living here now, um, they might, they probably don't, that wouldn't be like just the natural way that, that you would look at it. I, I could, I could, I can at least, I can wrap my head around that. I could see that that might be the case. So I think there's a combination of factors that have kind of created for this, you know, a little less uh, vocalization of the things that are going on. I think there are a lot of guys that are kind of standing back and, and consuming all of this right now, like under trying to understand it and, and trying to understand what, um, you know, our place, our positioning is in this. Um, so I would say, I think those are some reasons why, you know, American open wheel, uh, you know, drivers and, and just kind of the sport has been a little bit less on the front lines of, of this discussion, even as it really, even as compared to motorsport, um, in a more general sense. Um, you know, that being said, I guess to, to more directly answer the question of why have I said, why have I chosen to speak up or, you know, whatever, um, is is a couple of reasons. One, um, I, I do, I do relate to the fact that these are things that have happened as an American, um, somebody that grew up in the United, born and grew up in the United States, you know, my family has been in the States for a long time. Um, these are things that I view to be a part of, you know, my history, whether they've happened in my lifetime or not. Um, and you know, I would, I would certainly say that I do not fear backlash from people that I care about, um, the people that I care what they think. Um, I think support me at least as long as I'm being sort of thoughtful, at least about (laughs) what I'm saying online, um, which I try to be, um, I think people support that. And, And I happen to also have a sponsor who, um, you know, is vocal and active, uh, in, you know, uh, the push for equality 
gender rights, equal pay, all of these things. What's so, the name of that sponsor, by the way? That sponsor would be Salesforce um, mm. and uh, with Mr. Mark Benioff at the helm. So I guess I would say there there are some things that I maybe 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 those are some things that um, I, I, I guess I could I could think of some scenarios where at least some of those boxes would not have a check in them that would make me feel more comfortable doing this. Um, I would also say just at this point in my life and in my career, strictly on a personal basis, um, this is something that I care about. These, all of these things are things that I care about. Um, I, and that I, I have absolutely experienced a, you know, pretty, you know, I think a pretty serious, and, and, and maybe it's because we're in a pandemic and there's less going on and I'm not traveling as much. And so I'm, I have got a little bit more bandwidth or whatever, just the experience that I have had taking in everything that's happening. And really like, I think probably in part, just having the time to really think about it and to watch a 20 minute video like on the fly because I don't have somewhere that I have to be right that second or whatever. Um, it has really struck me that I, that there is a lot here that I did not appreciate enough or didn't, or, or just straight up didn't know, you know? Um, and I feel like my vocalization of I've, I have, so I've tried to just kind of vocalize to some degree the experience that I'm having here. Um, because I have, I have thought of myself up until this point as somebody who as a white person might be more aware of these things, you know, than maybe like the average white person. I don't know. Um, and, and now realizing that I, that there's still just like a, a whole spectrum of things that I did not at all respect or appreciate to the degree that I that I now am starting to, um, and, and, and should. So, um, that to me is something that's worth, you know, I, I will, and, and it's been enlightening, right? Like it's been, it's been something that has made me feel really good about, you know, learning something new and gaining a sense of a, a different kind of sense of empathy for, what other people might be going through. And, um, you know, so that I think is something that I've just thought, you know, other people might, I don't know for sure that other people are seeing this the same way that I'm seeing it or, or looking at the same stuff or whatever. But if there's anything that like these social platforms are good for, for, you know, right now, like it's, it's maybe to like try to provide some, you know, somewhere to, be introspective and be thoughtful and, um, you know, hopefully that helps move the goalpost. Um, I thought your tweet about Juneteenth, for example, was a, a perfect demonstration of, wow, this is a thing, has been a thing since 1865. And for African Americans, this is part of American culture as an African-American, but something that I, uh, as a Caucasian American, 
uh, was unaware of your, uh, just that alone stood out to me very much as like, wow, I'm so thankful that JR is walking us through areas of self-discovery in this specific regard, because while this is a important historical facet of African-American history, it is first and foremost American history. Right. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, I, I definitely don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself at all as somebody who's uh, leading anything particular or, or like whatever, you know, there are, there are certain things that over the course of my life or career that I have thought, you know what, I think I am like uniquely qualified to, to do this. And so I've set out to start things or do things, start doing things on my, you know, on my own, in my own way or whatever. Uh, this is, this is an area where there are very clearly uh, a whole lot of other people who are the ones who are uniquely qualified to, to, to lead movement forward. Um, to, to get us all more on the same page, to help us all continue to understand this better. Um, and so, you know, I guess I kind of view my, if, if I have a role in this from my perspective, it's, it's just to kind of support those people and, and support that message where I can and, uh, you know, try to do so in a way that's not, you know, like combative. Um, because I think at the end of the day, like, there's clearly a lot for all of us to, to learn and understand that, that we kind of just, that we, that we uh, up until now haven't taken the time for, um, and haven't done for whatever reason, you know, let me throw one thing back a little bit of a challenging question that I'm, it's not meant to challenge you directly. It's just hoping to gain further insight sure. from indie car drivers perspective before we move on to next questions. Oh, about primal numbers, which is one thing I know you'll love. Um, <laughs> there are currently no women racing in the IndyCar series. We do not expect, unless something really positive happens with Pippa and finding sponsorship and a team uh, for her to be in the, the field during the month of May, we will not have an African-American driver in the field. That I Again, I, I know of nothing going on there, and we can name some other shades of americans uh we will not have to our knowledge any gay or lesbian drivers uh in the field here if a tragedy befalls someone whether it is a woman a black man black woman gay or lesbian etc uh hispanic etc do we need to have a driver that represents that specific group in IndyCar for IndyCar drivers to truly act and take not just an interest, but to do something action-based to support. You mentioned NASCAR having Bubba, Formula One having Lewis. Awesome and amazing, but does it require having a person of a specific color who had someone from their ethnicity or gender or sexual identity murdered for people who aren't of that color, gender or sexual orientation to feel inspired and spurred to act. 
that's something that I know is not sitting well with me. We don't have a black driver in our series. Do we have to for the drivers in the series to take, to mobilize and take action as we've seen many NASCAR drivers have and some formula one drivers have as well. Yeah. I I mean, it's a good question for sure. Um, I think the, you know, the short answer to that is, you know, that we shouldn't. Right. Um, I also think that because of a few of the things that I mentioned earlier, that, that this is just such unfamiliar territory, um, for our industry, let alone driver, driver, you know, driver athletes within the industry to be, you know, wading into, um, you know, I think the reality of that is, you know, you've seen a lot, you saw a lot of, you know, a lot of IndyCar drivers, um, you know, speak up in, in some way, shape or form at a minimum posting in support of Bubba over the weekend. Um, I guess I think that this is not something that, you know, we're used to mobilizing or, or coming together behind the scenes, either or, um, for things that are happening outside of our sport. Like there's not a precedent really precedent really for in, in a kind of modern era for doing that. So I think that combined with the fact that everybody has in the back of their mind, the fragility of this, the situation that motorsports is currently in, um, the unknowns of, how people are going to react to these things. And, and oftentimes the negativity that, you know, kind of ends up being generated, like I said before, however small a percentage of the overall like effect on things that it's having. Um, I mean, that is no excuse only just as I think some context for why that's not happening right now. And I guess to me, what, what this is really brought to light for me is, is kind of just the fact that as, as much as IndyCar has a very diverse, you know, group of drivers in terms of where they come from, um, that we don't even really know those stories that well in terms of the challenges that, you know, guys that are not from the United States have faced racing here in the U S and, and that maybe we're just not addressing you know, the, the, uh, openness and the accessibility and the sense of openness, accessibility, opportunity that exists within our sport, um, to, to the outside from the perspective of young fans. You know, I kind of sit there and go, you know, we, we've heard, we've heard, you know, over the years, they're not in IndyCar just generally, right. For like all sports, but you know, motorsports in particular, that they're, you know, they're diversity programs and there's, there's all this kind of stuff. And I think for the first time, again, just cause I've, you know, we've had the time to sit around and think about this stuff a little bit more. I was kind of sitting there the other day, like, you know, like a diversity program driver search is probably not how you really create change one way or the other. Right. Like maybe you end up with some outcome there that's, whatever you set out to do. But if you, if, if what you set out to do isn't to fundamentally be more welcoming, accessible and interesting, um, 
to new demographics, to new pop, you know, new populations, new people, um, and understanding what that means, then it's probably not going to be like a long lasting change. Um, you know, I think what NASCAR has been going through here, what they've been doing, and maybe it needed to be addressed in a bigger way for, for NASCAR than it, than IndyCar perceives it to be for, for IndyCar or F1 for F1 or whatever. Um, but I think what they're doing is, is like a much more fundamental cultural shift, right? It's the start of that anyway. Um, and I think that's, that's in my mind, at least that's a little bit more how we should be thinking about this. Like, why isn't that? Why, why is there not currently just like a, a more excited audience? Um, why are there not more, you know, I mean, we could, we could, we could dig into this and, and start to like hypothesize what some of the answers to these questions are, but like, you know, from the ground up, like from, from a grassroots level, from a fan base level, all of that stuff, um, you're seeing a lot of the same thing. So I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big set of questions that I think should be looked at with that, you know, broad perspective at some point. Amen, Brother Hildebrand. Let's go to a project that you, uh, what, Riley Brennan, some, uh, there, there is some fun stuff going on here. We are talking about primal numbers, and our first question here, as my cat Rocky jumps up on my lap and tries to put his ass in my face, as he routinely does during this podcast. Uh, Jeff asks, primal numbers, what happened to what was going to be a wonderful project I was so excited about. Full and complete encouragement to start that up again. Uh, and another person as well, Howard Bennett, um, was curious about this too, uh, hoping that uh, this might come back. For those who don't know, what was it? Where did it go? And is it coming back? Sure. Yeah, it was just kind of like a, I don't know, like a fun side project, like graphic design project. Um, a few a few of us, you mentioned Riley, um, Clay Dean, uh, Diego Rodriguez, just some, some friends of mine, uh, who we worked on some projects together in the past. Um, you know, we, the, the short version of this is sort of kind of realizing we were doing a bunch of research for, for a different project and ended up realizing that like a lot of the numbers on restored race cars are restored wrong, like are restored incorrectly. Um, like the, graphic style is not, or they're like way more perfect than they ever used to be or whatever. And that just, I don't know, it sounds weird saying this now, but like that just ended up being something that bugged us a lot. <laughs> and so we uh, started this project just to dig into, you know, what were the, what were the original numbers and, and what's interesting about them? You know, I think you dig, you know, you look back in, in, in like motorsports past and before, before everything was on TV and everything was about a sponsor, like the number was oftentimes the most primary graphic element of the car, you know, um, like up through, I would say like the sixties into the seventies, that was, that was the case, if not kind of bleeding, bleeding into some time after that. So, um, we basically would just would pick a few that we liked and, um, hire a designer, uh, you know, just a freelance designer online to reconstruct the original, uh, the original numbers and, and had a fun time then kind of using that as a storytelling mechanism about those cars and, and maybe something specific that was interesting, um, about that car or that photo, that particular time in history. 
um, and what was going on. So um, we've done it the last couple of years, I guess, um, just around my numbers at the Indianapolis 500. Um, so two years ago when we ran 66, that that number style was actually lifted off of the, I think it was a Pullman Moody Ford uh, that in from Jim Clark's lone NASCAR start. Um, and, uh, last year we, you know, used the very, the very, uh, recognizable AAR Dan Gurney 48 from his early, early, earlier runs at Indy. Um, so at a minute we, we tried to like keep it going at least for that. And, uh, I guess the short answer is, you know, we've, we've dropped the ball a little bit on, on continuing to, to keep it rolling. It ended up being a lot more effort to like get all of this exactly right. And then because we were, we had decided that we were like going to be perfectionists about it. So then being perfectionists about it to like ripping a bunch of old photos off of, you know, finding good photos of the sides of cars to actually get the number right was, was more difficult than, than, uh, than we thought. So maybe we, we owe a, a minor tip of the cap to the, the restoration folks that, that get out there. We, we realized your job is a little tougher than we might've thought, but, um, Anyway, a fun project and, and a fun way just of looking looking back into racing's history, for sure. I love it. Let's go to Jordan Darwin, a man who regularly throws in some great questions for us. Asks, JR, how do we access your STEM materials and what mm-hmm. age ranges are they for? STEM, big thing that, boy, I sure hope that takes a greater hold in IndyCar as well in terms of importance, but how do folks access what you've done? And uh, tell us a little more about this, because although we don't hear about it as much as maybe when you were, you know, really launching uh, your initiatives here, it's not as if that has fallen off your plate. Yeah. Um, You know, I guess a little bit of background, you know, back in 2015, maybe, or 14, 15, um, I started a foundation um, in essence, I think my view of this has always been, um, you know, I had a unique experience, particularly in high school, but even before that of, um, you know, I was racing at that point. I'd been around cars, I'd been around motorsports, but once I actually started racing and, you know, you're looking at data and really, I really began to appreciate that, like, not just that a lot of, uh, I think a lot of STEM kind of initiatives, STEM, STEM being science, technology, engineering, math, um, are focused on kind of like helping you see as a student, the light at the end of the tunnel for where there's an engineering job, you know, in your future, potentially. Um, my, my kind of pivot on that was, while that's definitely true and possible to do, um, and, and worthwhile to do, Um, there's, I think a lot, a lot can come from just helping students of various age ranges see the relevance of their day-to-day curriculum subjects, right? Like that to me was actually much more powerful just to see like, oh, this thing that I'm studying today is actually all by itself important to understand to do what we're doing out at the track. Um, and so that, that like kept my kind of fire burning in a way that did not require me really to think that hard about, 
what engineering job I wanted or exactly what I wanted to study when I went to college. It was kind of like, oh, well, this is obviously relevant. Like, I'll figure that out when I get there, you know. Um, so what we, what I did and, and kind of put a little team around me at the time, um, was, you know, the, the sort of challenge that I took on was, um, can we use real data from the racetrack, like real scenarios and, and real information that has been collected or, or that we experience at the track, um, to create curriculum specific, um, you know, lesson planning, basically, like create something that's plug and play, you know, here, you're, you're, you're abiding by these curriculum standards in ninth grade math or science here, we can give you a lesson plan that abides by all of that same stuff, like has those same, you know, basic outcomes, but it's through the lens of something that's actually going on in real life. That's pretty cool. Um, and so, we did a bunch of that basically just as a, as a pilot program in, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, we were in like Watts, California, some, you know, in lower income areas, initially at lower performing schools that were part of a network where there was a lot of support going in to try to, you know, sort of build these, build these schools back up, increase their relative funding, um, you know, increase their performance, churn out more, more kids that are going to college, um, making for a safer educational environment, all of this stuff. Um, and it was a great, a great entry point for me where they're, we're kind of like willing to experiment with a lot of things. Um, so we got in, I, I think very solidly, you know, proved out the idea that this is something that's possible to do. And then like a lot of things, um, and, and I think this is true for things that IndyCar has done, over that, you know, since from that point on before and after, um, is, you know, when it comes to scaling these things up, then it really requires, that's where the effort really comes in. It's one thing for me to go in and work with some teachers and curriculum specialists and come up with curriculum and go in and help co-teach some classes and do that kind of stuff. Um, but to a degree like that's, you know, that's not something that is always capable of being replicated. Um, you know, there's only one of me. I only have so much kind of extra time to, to figure these things out, work on them. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, like I was, I was actually the one writing some of the lesson plans, right? wow. which is definitely, definitely not scalable. Scary. Um, so I think, yeah, right. What were those kids getting out of this really? <laughs> um, healing and towing. Okay. It, All right. We're going <laughs> to figure out that angle. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, so I guess the, the long, the, to make a longer story short, um, you know, I'm always happy to dive in with teachers who are excited about this kind of stuff and help them figure out in their own classrooms how to do this. Um, I think through some of what I've done, I've definitely learned that creating like a large, a largely scaled program is something that requires some real infrastructure and, um, you know, financial support and, and all the rest of it. These are things that, you know, I have had ongoing conversations with IndyCar about it's on their radar. Um, I, I really, I, I do think that as ownership changes and all of this stuff kind of, everybody settles in a little bit more to a, to a new routine. Um, you know, these are conversations hopefully now that we'll have some more, um, you know, there'll be a little bit more of a long view 
to what the benefit of these things are. And, you know, we can, we can crank that back up. Cause I think it's, you know, something that I've always been super interested in just being in some of those classrooms and seeing, you know, for whatever reason, if it's because they've got IndyCar driver there or it's because the, the material is actually interesting or whatever, there's absolutely a positive effect of engagement um, from the content that's from the content and the experience that was, that was being created. And that was something that like still stands out to me now as a hundred percent worth, worth doing and, and being a part of. Um, so, you know, I mean, even Lewis just recently, you know, over the weekend or whatever announced that you know, he's starting a commission um, that's focused on this same kind of stuff for, you know, and, and maybe specifically targeting, minorities or, or, or black kids. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I was quick to reach out and at a minimum, you know, offer my assistance where it, where it might, uh, where it might be helpful and, and we'll see how some of these things just continue to evolve. Well, hopefully there was a positive response to that. And that would be a pretty darn cool thing because imagine wacky idea well-known IndyCar driver starts a STEM initiative. Well-known Formula One driver starts a STEM initiative. They talk. Maybe other hmm. drivers and other series start STEM initiatives. Weird. They all talk. And I think, you know... <laughs> Make it bigger <laughs> than they, it could be on an individual level. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I think that, that gets back a little bit to the, like, yeah, these are just things that, like somebody should be doing these. So like, it might, doesn't have to be me. Like, I don't, I'm not like, I gotta be the guy here. Like, I just want to see some of it happen. And I think, um, you know, another mutual friend of ours, uh, you know, Michael Cannon is uh, among, uh, I think a long list of engineers within motorsport that want to see this happen and are engaged with it. Um, you know, I mean, I brought Michael out to me you know, a few years ago, uh, to, you know, go out to MIT, talk to them about it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people within the paddock that are passionate about this, that, um, you know, I, I definitely, I think like you are hopeful that that can, uh, get harnessed for sure. I try and remind folks whenever it is appropriate statements, like somebody should take a post-it <laughs> note, write the words, you are somebody put it on your mirror in the bathroom. So the next time you say, you know, somebody should, Oh, Hey, I'm somebody. I could do it. My dang self. Like it's, it might sound silly. And I'm not trying to say this in a flippant way. It certainly wasn't the way that I thought for many, many years of my life. But at some point in time, the light bulb went off that said, Oh yeah, someone should do that. Um, so why wait? Uh, it's it's right. not it, it's not too different from a lot of the questions that appear in comments on social media. Hey, does anybody know who finished third at the such and such race last year? My immediate thought is always if you have the time and ability to type that question into whatever Twitter, Facebook, you name it. Imagine if you just type that into Google search and you got your own answer. Like, Hey, this is kind of <laughs> one-stop shopping. So it's the same kind of mindset. Like, yeah, you, you're the somebody, internet. you could do it. 
you can get, do it and be it. So I don't know. There we go. All right. We're going to stay in this general area. Shauna Oakwood. She, again, like many, uh, many of our awesome listeners, she is one who's always guaranteed to send in something good to make our brains work. She asks, how much has your engineering background helped you as a racer? And also is curious what it was like working with Ed Carpenter as a fellow engineering type and driver type, knowing that from a teammate standpoint, seems like the two of you would have been cut from the same cloth. Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I think it, yeah, I guess I, I think for me it helps. Like for the way that I look at things and like process things, it helps to have had that kind of, you know, I guess that's a little, it's a weird way of saying that they just, they, they go together. I'm not sure that it's something that necessarily having all, having like information in that or having like a background in that always necessarily helps in racing for everybody. Um, but for me, I think like, I'm, I'm just kind of like, a I look at things as a, as a process. Um, you know, it, it always helps me if, if things are kind of clicking, usually it's because I'm understanding what's going on and why it's happening that way. And, you know, that I think, you know, having kind of an engineering mindset feeds into all of that. Right. So, um, I think for me, there are, there are times when, you know, if I was to say there's, there's any like negatives that come from it is that there can be times when you really just have to shut all of that off. Um, or let the engineers do their job or whatever. I mean, I can think of some times in my past where maybe I've been uh, like a little overbearing in terms of what I think we should be doing. Um, and so, but I think generally speaking, I have always been better in situations where it like all makes sense why we're doing whatever we're doing and, and kind of what the thought process is behind it. And having more of that, like, engineering-focused mindset um, is the thing that often allows me to see that. Um, in terms of working with Ed, you know, I mean, I can say working within that, t- that year was, you know, frankly, among the more frustrating, you know, kind of total experiences as I've had just because, we did not, I don't feel like as a group really have that understanding for what was going on a lot of the time. Um, there was a, you know, some relatively significant personnel shifts from the year before with, with Joseph there, not, you know, obviously Joseph and then his engineer, Jeremy Millis and, um, you know, their assistant all, all left. Um, you know, we filled in with Justin Taylor, who was an awesome engineer and who I, you know, would rank, super highly among, uh, engineers that I worked with, but he was coming from the factory Audi program. Hadn't been an IndyCar before. Um, you know, he and I felt like there was a lot of things that we were kind of figuring out together. And at the end of the day, like once you get into the season, there's not that much testing, there's not that much to do. Um, you know, there's not that much you can do to figure new things out or like try new things outside of whatever you choose to throw at the car in the first practice session. Um, you know, that was kind of a frustrating part of the experience. That said, working with Ed directly as a driver um, was was really good. And I think that, you know, he and I particularly, you know, we were, we were only driver teammates on the ovals. 
um, we did very much see things the same way within kind of a Nats hair. We were for the most part looking for the same thing where we went driving the car in a similar fashion. So, you know, especially on oval and, and either way, but particularly on ovals that helps a lot, um, that you're, you're taking the same kind of arcs into the corner that you're looking for the same way for the car to free up. Um, you know, when one guy is, I think more comfortable with it being a certain way or looking for it to be a certain way and the other really isn't. And you get into this kind of like comfort or, or confidence situation. You can, I think those, those kind of scenarios can really go sideways when it gets, when it comes to oval racing. Um, so Ed was awesome to work with from that perspective. You know, we would always type up notes, read each other's notes. Um, you know, it was very cohesive from that perspective. And I think that, and I think frankly that year, like, that was a big part of a handful of events that's us, you know, punching above our weight was just being so much on the same page. So, so that part of it, I really enjoyed. going to stay in the general area of being smart and racing. Uh, our pal Christian Denevsky asks, JR, in a world where technology is constantly developing, how much of an impact do you think having experience in STEM related fields will have in racing? And do you think someone could provide value uh, by possessing experience in the field, in the fields encompassing STEM, but maybe little to no experience in racing itself? Essentially, do you feel technologists could become increasingly more prevalent in racing? He says, selfishly asking for myself. It's, a, it's an interesting one, right? Because if we're thinking about mm-hmm. the wave of STEM being embraced and recognized for its importance... In theory, and again, I mean, if you're talking to fifth graders about this, then obviously they're, as the police, the STEM police are rolling by here. Um, if you're talking to fifth graders, it's going to be a while before we see them out and in the world practicing. But in theory, right. there could be some high schoolers, even college students from however many years ago you spoke to who could potentially uh, now be in that place to work and, and be out in our space any thoughts on whether this uh there might be some some real world examples uh of folks racing has focused on in stem to actually find employment in this field without having hardcore racing backgrounds too yeah i think that i guess i would say just in terms of how important it can be and, and maybe what what i think are the areas that you know if you if you wanted to kind of bridge that gap. What are the, what are the areas that I would think about studying, um, you know, or or are becoming like increasingly important, you know, particularly if you look at, um, you know, kind of from formula one down through, you know, the factory programs to, you know, NASCAR and IndyCar, um, is, you know, analysis, right. Just data analysis, generally computer science, um, simulation, all of those things, those tools are becoming so good, that um, they are, you, you really can rely on them heavily at this point. And, you know, the more, the more people that you have, the more bandwidth you can generate to focus on those things and understand how to correlate them, kind of triangulate correlation between, you know, strict, you know, computer simulation to, we'll say like vehicle, vehicle driver simulation, like being going to the sim and working there. Um, and at track data and performance, that's like kind of the trifecta that 
um, I think in a lot of ways separates really good teams from teams that are not as good. The, the more you can trust um, all three of those things to correlate and the more that you understand about those three things and the more data that you're generating and have the bandwidth to actually filter and go through that I think will just at this point forever be like a huge part of performance in, in motorsports. Um, with that said, I also think that there's a tremendous amount of value to layer on top of that, or, or maybe you could think about it as layering kind of underneath it as a foundation, just of the, the way that you think that comes from just understanding the science, you know, like scientific process, having like a, being able to be comfortable looking at the car and understanding that there are all of these different parts and that they all go together. You know, um, I think, you know, Marshall, I, you, you can speak to this as much as I can. I think, you know, being around people in the paddock, but you know, all of the engineers that really have their, you know, stuff dialed are the guys that I guess I look at and think, and, and just as, you know, to get to being an IndyCar engineer, to get to being a race engineer for the Formula One team, to get to being a race engineer at, at any, any of these places at the highest level, um, they are people who can zoom in and zoom out of what's going on and kind of take it all in, you know? And so I think that, um, you know, while, while I would say that that kind of computer science and simulation area is becoming increasingly where performance is being found. And I think that's something that, that won't go away as an area of study. Um, you know, if I was in school taking classes that are a little bit more general, having that more general sense of what's going on here, how does, how does what I'm working on, if I'm just working on some little piece of this fit into the whole, um, being able to have that, that awareness and context, um, is I think really the thing that, that takes engineers to that, to that high level. For sure. And this is fitting your question a little bit, Christian, Told it before on the show, but it never stops being fun. Uh, our friend Mike Hull from Chip Ganassi rang me a couple years back and said, you'll never guess what I'm doing tomorrow. And I said, all right, you know, I'll bite. He says, I'm driving one of our uh, junior engineers, assistant engineers to the DMV. I said, really? Okay. That is interesting guy. Who's the managing director of fricking chip can you know, like in my mind immediately de- defaulted to, don't you have better things to do? Like, you know, shouldn't there be something else you're doing uh, instead of driving a, you know, one of your younger engineers to the DMV to take his driver's test. And he said, uh, well, the interesting part is he's never driven a car before what so no he's taken the written test and i guess passed it but now he has to do the driving test and uh, i guess he's been practicing or something you know who knows what what might have been a family member or whatever car but he's never up until this point he's never driven a car before and he said think about that we hired and again i don't remember his full lineage coming in but you know out of college kind of thing liked motor racing, had a passion for it, but truly had never stepped on a throttle, (laughs) turned a steering wheel. None of the things, JR, that you would say would be 
core aspects of being involved in any facet of vehicular engineering, you know? Um, yeah. Crazy concept, but he said, but it's true. So despite having no firsthand experience or connection to vehicular dynamics, aha, when I step on the brake and turn, huh, kind of doesn't turn real good like, hey, when I lift at this inopportune moment, all of a sudden this thing happens. Yeah, okay, I understand the name all the things. Never. And you would have to assume never really experience the, oh, well, I'm going to stiffen the rear anti-roll bar to affect something across the front axle and blah, blah, blah. Total absence of firsthand vehicular experience. And yet, through apparent excellence in school, grasping all the things you mentioned, computer science, math, physics, and so on, and having a passion yeah. for motor racing, was able to use, we'll just say, STEM education to backfill the thing, man, that I couldn't fathom not having. And yet, as Christians may be asking here, like, I don't know if we should say this kid maybe is a total exception and no one else could do it but him, but it would suggest it is possible, right? That blow, it still blows my mind. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I have like two little quick anecdotes to that, which is uh, I always thought one of the cool things about the program that I worked with uh, and, and, you know, continue to work with at Stanford, um, you know, it's all kind of around autonomous vehicles and, you know, but there's a track car and there's a car that drifts and, and all this stuff that um, Chris Gertie's the professor that oversees it, you know, has all of the kid, all the students, um, you know, go like drive a spec Miata and do that kind of stuff. And that's almost just like a little, um, you know, internal, like just so that they can understand what, you know, when they see the data from the autonomous car, that they have some sense of what is actually happening here on the track. Um, but I think that that's, I, oh, that always stood out to me as like, Oh man, like I, that totally makes sense. And why does this not happen more, uh, just generally. And then another one that's in this kind of in the same vein, um, Back in 2013, um, my last year at Panther Racing, earlier in that year, um, I went to go see Rob Wilson, who's you know sort of well known, oh yeah, like driver coach, right? Like, I'm old enough to have seen drive. him race in Barber Saab and Indy Lights, so okay, <sighs> yeah. Um, and maybe I think a, a better term for Rob is a driving coach, right? Like he you go over there, it's at this, you, you, you pick up a rental car, you drive it out, you go by this place that, you know, does this like door deal for Rob with your rental car that they swap like better front tires. Cause they're all from the drive for like the day. And then you, know, so you like go by this little tire shop to do this thing and you drive the track, you know, it's a little bit of kind of instruction and, and just kind of get you to understand the, the idea. Um, he's got like this, you know, fairly specific, um, you know, driving style that, uh, you know, in, I think in, in his, in his mind, but, but has proven to be the case is like a, a super critical way of understanding, you know, how tire scrub and, and, and just tie, you know, the car, the, the work of the car from front to rear, how the 
you know, front of the car to the rear of the car interacts with the tire going through the corner. Um, and it has a lot to do with your rate of input. So that's kind of the thing that you're honing while you're there is be becoming more aware of the rate that you do things, hitting the brake, rolling on the throttle, turning the steering wheel, um, turning the steering wheel initially, turning the steering wheel once you've got the car loaded up. You know, those are those even are two different things. Um, and so the, to pull this together, the second time that I went out there to do it, um, and he's got, you know, he's had Valtteri and a number of IndyCar drivers and, you know, other F1 dudes and, you know, Petter Salberg and, you know, a lot of top drivers go, wow. see, go see Rob. Um, and so we had Tino was Tino Belli, who's now working for IndyCar and their director of aerodynamic on development. It, you know, yes. Race car yeah, designer. Exactly. He, uh, he was the, you know, he had been brought in in 2013 at Panther to be like technical director. So he came over with us and, uh, got in the back seat while we were driving around. And after the initial, I think just shock of that, I think pretty much anybody has that, that we all still just, you know, are giddy about every time it happens that when somebody's as a passenger, they just can't fathom how rental car X goes as fast as it does. Like where are the, the, Oh, you know what handles on this thing. Um, but it was interesting just to see his reaction to some of these things and to see how he was now starting. He, I think it, it made him think about, you know, things that were going on with the car, you know, maybe just because he, you know, in that moment kind of saw them being a little bit more directly connected to the way that the driver was doing whatever the driver was doing, you know, whereas oftentimes, you know, we, we all kind of look at them as separate parts So you've got car performance and you've got driver performance, you know? Um, and so, you know, both of those I think are, are interesting examples of like, yeah, Definitely, if you can get out and actually get in the car, get in the car with a driver, get in the, you know, go, go take, expand your, you know, frame of reference for, you know, what's really going on here. That, uh, that can certainly be a good thing. I love that we get all the brainy stuff for you. Folks ask really simple questions of me because they do not have high expectations for my thinking capabilities. It's well-placed, so that's not a complaint. Uh, our pal Jerry Suddeth, hey, Jerry, I hope you're doing well and, uh, and the family out there, uh, asks, JR, what do you think is the most easily attainable way to make IndyCar more relevant or simply road relevant to capture more manufacturers to join in? Mm, I think that's a, that's a tougher question to answer than, than maybe it seems, I think. Um, because if the question is just, you know, if, if the, if the outcome that we're looking for here is just how do you get more manufacturers to participate that I think is actually different than how do we make, how do you make IndyCar or any motorsport more road relevant. And this is kind of a, a, uh, I don't know, bit of insight that I think I've just more recently come to understand better. Um, so to get more, I think to get more manufacturers involved to me, that has little to do right now in motorsports with 
a power plant or anything in particular being more relevant. And I think that that is because, by and large, individual manufacturers do not want to be doing the same thing as other manufacturers, not because they actually, not just for that reason, but just because what Chevrolet views to be its, you know, sort of core um, product offerings or, or powertrain offerings are just fundamentally different than what they are for Honda and Toyota and Ford and whatever. Like until there is a, you know, common spec platform among auto manufacturers, there is not ever from my perspective going to be a common spec platform in an auto in a racing series that is going to make sense for lots of people for that reason, for the reason that it's relevant to them. Um, so if we're talking about relevance and we'll just take powertrains as the, or, you know, engines as the core component for IndyCar, at least of being road relevant. Um, I think you, my, my view of that would be if you want more manufacturers that are doing it because it's relevant to them. Um, I would say, you need to be able to create a set of regulations that allows different manufacturers to do do different things, um, which is not really on the, you know, docket, I don't think right now. Um, so I think that's a really hard thing to do, frankly, right now. And I think it's a, if, if you're asking me, it's a huge, just general problem for motorsports and it needs to be solved. Um, the, because BOP also sucks, which is the other way, the, the only way right now that we have as like a, a mechanism for doing that is have this arbitrary kind of messing around with of performance, which the obvious downside to that is it just, it, it, this, the ceiling for people caring about it, even manufacturers, I think when there's no, there, there is not like a, sort of capitalistic genuineness to where the performance is coming from. There's just, there's only so much that, you know, people are going to invest in that um, emotionally or otherwise. Um, to answer the question of how does it become, how do we just get more manufacturers? Um, I think the, the simpler solution there is somehow find a way to just make it cheaper and more, um, interesting from a marketing perspective, basically. I mean, I, I personally think that at this point, a lot of manufacturer dollars that are spent in motorsports are not because it's relevant to, not because the specific thing that's going on in that motorsport is relevant to them, but is more simply because they view it to be something that makes sense to them from a marketing perspective. They're participating in the Indianapolis 500, which matters to them. Um, their, uh, you know, the television numbers for NASCAR are X. Um, so they have a ton of people who are their consumers that are watching it. That is to some degree disconnected. And, and frankly, like how could, how could you not argue that that hasn't been sort of disconnected from the actual motors that are in the cars for a long time? Um, so to me, this leads to like a little bit of another just thought or, or, you know, topic, which is, what's the right way to do that? I think a lot of people would hear all of that and say, well, then why don't we just create like a common platform across a bunch of motorsports? Um, 
you know, create something that's plug and play in an indie car, in a stock car, in a this and a that, you know, so that manufacturers can pick and choose where they want to go. I think that unfortunately, while that seems like a good solution, um, because it creates an economy of scale, that is just fundamentally a reduction of motorsports. Um, that is not something that anybody, no fan, no, no person within a, you know, automotive company that is passionate and excited about motorsports is going to be hyped about everything now suddenly running, a you know, turbo V6. Um, you know what I mean? So that's like a long winded way of saying, I think this is like a bigger problem, but, um, I think those are, those are the critical factors as I see it when I look at manufacturer involvement in sport. I'm pushing for turbo V sevens. No one will listen. So I'm a little bit pissed about that to folks who don't know anything about engines. They might not know that was a really intentionally stupid comment. Um, let's go to Brad who asks Jr. Why are you seemingly absent on the virtual racing side? Do you not like it? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Seems like you would be into the technical aspects, etc. So Hildebrand, apparently you've committed a crime by not participating Call me out. in. Yeah, <laughs> sucker. Oh, I can finish second at the Indy 500. Whatever, dude. Let's talk about sim racing. Why aren't you there? And why are you uh, just a really horrible person? Um, well, the actual reason for that is that, well, there's, there's two reasons and they're both kind of excuses, but, um, I do like virtual racing. I got, I mean, like I started, started racing on like, you know, PPG IndyCar 1997 or something, sports car GT, all the like goodness, goodness from back in the day. Um, so it's, it's been a part of my like upbringing in the sport, but, um, in the more recent iteration of all of this stuff, um, I will say to start with, I was not included in, um, IndyCar's <laughs> thing. So I did, I did not, uh, it was not required of me that I immediately thrashed to get all of this equipment to like be able to do it. I have like some, you know, I was on like old Logitech stuff, which we just very quickly, I very quickly found out like this to be competitive in any of these things, like you do actually need some pretty high quality equipment that I did not have. Um, I was very much on the, you know, sort of Connor Daly program program in there, um, with lousy Wi-Fi to boot, um, in the room that all my stuff was in. And, uh, and so I kind of didn't like, didn't jump off on it right away. And then, and then basically everything was out of stock. So it, I literally just like two weeks ago, finally got like some proper equipment. Um, and over that time we started, uh, started remodeling our house. You've become a general contractor. uh, I have become a general contractor over the last, uh, last few weeks. And so the room that the the one room that I have available at our little pad here in Boulder is like filled with all the rest of the stuff that was from our house. And that was not a battle I was going to win with my wife. So, um, I guess the short answer is I was not required to do all of this stuff and uh, have every intention of jumping in now that it's cooled off a little bit. And uh, we'll see how it goes from there. Because I do think it was interesting. I mean, it was really interesting to me just to hear there was a lot of guys that were just talking about how, you know, once you actually got the really proper stuff, which a lot of us, I mean, obviously you saw as it happened, like everybody was thrashing to get it. You know, very few 
pro drivers, unless you know, they were already involved in sim racing, you know, had, you know, like direct drive steering wheels and all those types of things that, um, I was impressed by how many guys kind of said, Hey, actually, like, I'm like learning how to do some things here that I, you know, wouldn't have thought this would have been a viable platform to do. So if for no other reason than, uh, working on my, working on my skill, beautiful, um, it's in my future. Oh, all right. We're going to grab, let's see, Brian Burrell, JR, you love history. What would be your ultimate race car and track to have a go in? Oh, man. I know. That's a great question. One of those, this is one of those um, things that you never can answer correctly because you've got 50 answers. Yeah. Um, I would say a, I mean, it's just kind of like impossible not to pick like a, Porsche 91710 or the or the 91730 Can-Am car has a car that it, it just seems like if you could just have a go in it once you'd check a box that no other car can check um and where would you drive it I mean if I was like super confident that I was like gonna come out alive on the other side I would yeah I'd say like I want to drive it at Spa or at uh Road America would be I'd, I'd actually go road Atlanta um, just cause that's one of my favorite tracks that we don't really drive. You know, we don't, we obviously at IndyCar don't run at. Um, I think for oval cars, it's amazing to me just thinking about how unbelievably unsafe, like old oval cars must be to drive. Oh, I yeah. guess oh, like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it really is kind of crazy. I mean, I look at some of those cars, even from like, you know, cars that are like 200 mile an hour cars just thinking like how did you ever crash and like get out alive like i don't like how could you crash how is there a way to crash this like i don't you know what i mean like i don't know the roll bar Um, is five inches below the top of your helmet absolutely i mean i so i think from that perspective again if i if i could like convince myself not to be too concerned about it um especially knowing now that they're I mean, I don't know. Now that they're vintage cars, maybe they're in better. Maybe they're more safe now somehow. Um, but I would say like the like that sixty nine seventy uh, era of turbo offy indie cars. Early um, wings. I guess. Yeah. I guess. I guess Early that kind of like you know extends to like seventy one maybe, but like the uh, you know Alonser Johnny Lightning car. Oh. Um, you know, those kinds of things, just cause they're like big tires, um, and a ton of horsepower, but still no arrow. I just, I just imagine them as being kind of like, okay, this thing would be, it's gotta just be fast as hell down the straights. And you feel all of this power, which is what you're always just looking for. And I, you know, you obviously you have to drive the hell out of it through the corners, but with such big tires, I, I guess I just have this sense in the back of my mind that you'd you'd feel the car pretty well, you know, like you'd feel like you could lean on it, you know, um, that just, it, it's like, it's the one thing, honestly, that like every race car driver, every Indy car driver that I've ever talked to, when you talk to them about like, what's your, what's your like dream, you know, scenario, they just give you the, like, give me the Rick Mears car. Give me the, give me the, the fastest hell down the straight, no wings, got to drive it through the corner, got to pedal a little bit. Give me some tires that give me something that just feels like a giant go-kart, you know, like 
that's what we all give me a give me four digits worth of horsepower and like 500 pounds of aero and no wings and big tires and let me at it you know because like that's what we you know you just want to feel that and that to me like those cars from that era like seem like i bet they were like that those are my two all right jr we have uh, jamie uh shawnup and also emerson layman curious about future aspirations you ever see yourself sitting on pit lane calling race strategy for a team driver coach engineering any interest in team or series management one day that's a good question i i mean i guess i i don't really i guess the answer really is i don't really know um but i would say that to me i just have this kind of feeling that we're you know motorsport is just experiencing a a list of things right now that it has not experienced in the same way, not even right now amidst the pandemic. Like these are just things that have started to happen um, that are going to require some fairly substantial change for it to be something that matters at all mm. um, or that, or like exists, um, you know, into the, into the future. And I don't mean that to sound like a, you know, doomsday thing. Like it'll, you know, it'll find its way through some of this stuff, but, um, you know, I think what we've also seen and sort of experienced to some degree as industries, all kinds of industries across, across the globe have amidst this pandemic is it's kind of just like accelerating trends that were already there, you know? And so, um, I think there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I could, I could rattle a few of them off. I don't want to take too much time, but like, you know, motorsport has been dominantly dependent on television for a long time, just for like a huge nut, a huge part of its nut, like a big part of its revenue um, comes strictly just from like television rights fees, not even connected in, in a more complex way um, to how people watch or what they watch. That is something that's changing um, like pretty dramatically when, you know, everything, you know, we've got NASCAR and, and IndyCar kind of, solo acts right now on the, in the TV spectrum amidst the pandemic, but you know, all accounts by all accounts prior to that television, just across the board, um, for live sports, um, you know, for motorsport was not something that's like we can continue to count on in the same way, whether you think that's a huge deal or not. Advertising is just changing. Like advertisers are not, what television has to offer to an advertiser, whether you're a sponsor of a team or you're a part of the series is not what it once was. Um, you know, what an advertiser can get out of targeted ads on Facebook are, you know, is 10 X that, that they can get for their spend. Um, you know, just to more generally be seen by whatever the TV demographic is. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the shift that's happening in automotive that's happening as quickly as anything has ever happened in automotive, this kind of change away from the internal combustion engine towards, uh, you know, these sustainability outcomes that everybody's having to abide by at like a global government level. Um, you know, motorsport is not currently well aligned with kind of any of that. Um, Technology does not is no longer does not no longer has the north star that it once had in motorsport. Like 
motorsport used to very clearly, I would say up through like the mid nineties, be about just this kind of pursuit of speed. Technology was aligned with that. Um, it is not either of those things, you know, neither of those things I don't think are happening anymore. Motorsport is not just strictly about the pursuit of speed. We've had to put a cap on that because cars were starting to go too fast, like 20 years ago. Um, that hasn't meaningfully changed in the last 20 years and technology has continued to just like crank, um, at a, you know, ever accelerating pace. Um, there's all of these things that are happening you know, there, there's, there's a couple more things, honestly, on, on the end of that list to me, but, you know, we really need as a sport and as individual entities within the sport, I think to think much more critically about like, what is it really like, why does this deserve to exist? You know, like what, and not that it doesn't, like, I think absolutely there's a, there's a great, there are great answers to that question, but do we know what those answers are and we are, are we really aligned around them or not? You know? Um, cause I think that that's, that's going to be a super important thing to do. So for me, that actually, however that manifests itself is, is super interesting to me to help find the answers to that question, to help, um, calibrate, you know, motorsport, uh, or motorsport entities, around what are the things that are really worth caring about here? You know, what is the, and, and what are the ways that we, and are, are we really elevating those aspects of what's going on? You know, um, I guess it's my general sense that we've, we've gotten away from a lot. We've kind of meandered away from a lot of that stuff because, you know, not much has changed basically in the sport in 20 years. So, um, you know, owning a team, being, you know, being an engineer for a team, you know, those are things I think that are only super interesting to me if I really felt like the opportunities are going to be things that I'm going to be excited about like 20 years from now. Um, and right now, I feel like that's a very murky, those are very murky waters. There's, there's not a lot of vision that, um, gets me excited from that perspective. And so that, that to me is the thing that if I could carve out a carve out a way to be involved in figuring that out, that's probably what interests me most. Love you and your insightful answers there, Mr. Hildebrand. Let's go two questions. John Ranjow, friend of the show. Jay, I'm a big fan of the university of Michigan football. I got to ask if you have any good Jim Harbaugh stories when he was a part owner uh, at Panther racing. Um, I think that, I mean, there's some stories from that time that like just won't make any sense. So I like, have a hard time. Like I, I don't even know how to provide some of the context that would make that, that would like make them seem as funny as like they were when it actually happened. Um, the most fun that we had with Jim was um, going out to Niners training camp um, when he was coaching. I mean, obviously I'm a, 49ers football fan, you know, have been since I was a kid. Um, so to be able to go out there and, you know, Patrick Willis was still there and, uh, you know, it was, it was actually the season. Alex Smith was quarterback it was the season before cap was, um, I guess it was the end of that season when, you know, cap Alex went down for, he got in and, and, and he Colin Kaepernick got put in and kind of ended up being, they stuck with it. He ended up being the guy. Uh, for a few years there at that point, but, um, 
it was interesting. What was, what was interesting just about that is, uh, when we were at training camp at the beginning of that year, um, it was clear that, you know, that a lot of, a lot of folks within the team, you know, had seen, seen what Kaepernick could do. And it was almost like it was, there was this foregone conclusion that at some point they just, they just anticipated that, you know, there was going to be something, something special for them, you know, in, and so it was, it, it was cool just from a sports perspective to kind of see, see how an organization works like that. These are the types of things that you hear about on ESPN or sports center or whatever, but, um, you know, just to see, you know, Jim, Jim clearly is a, is a guy for all of his like quirks, you know, he, he just has kind of a bead on like, really specific things, you know, that he's just got like this totally innate sense or, or feel of like what they're going to be, how they, how they're going to work out. So that was, that was just like a a really cool, like kind of from a sports or as a sports fan, like a cool thing to kind of see that be there, check it out and see it, see it play out over the course of the year. But Jim was always just like a, a riot to be around. Bit of a savant for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Let's go. Let's close the show, Jr. We always try to close with something fun or silly. From our pal Kyle Donnelly. He says, all right, Jr. and the Sage is the newest buddy cop show to hit the airwaves, featuring the technically-minded, hair-and-beard guideline-flaunting Jerry Hildebrand and the Sage, Sage Karam who brings the muscles out of the woods of Eastern Pennsylvania. What is the location of this show in what decade does it take place? And most importantly, who performs the theme song? JR and the Sage man, newest buddy cop show. I am loving this. Where, where should we start? Uh, where does this take place? What town, uh, what location did, does JR and the Sage happen to police i'm thinking that this is like 2045 2050 oh snap we're going into um, the future we're go we're going into the future for this for sure <laughs> um I'm, you know I'm, i've got like kind of cyberpunk blade runner style you know kind of situation maybe we're maybe we're you know sage is familiar with you know he's coming out of the woods of, of eastern pennsylvania you know, he's familiar with that kind of woodsy, woodsy vibe. Maybe, maybe, but we're, maybe we're actually in like, you know, Montana where there's like the last settlement of, you know, post-apocalyptic. Is that what we're dealing with? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Like we've had some crazy, you know, we all thought it was going to be, you know, it was going to be civil unrest or it was going to be climate change, but it was actually just the meteor. And, you know, this is the last settlement. Um, you know, we've got to restore order. Well, okay. Um, I, I, so I love this. So if we're going into the future and we've chosen Montana as, you know, this is a little kind of red dawnish, but again, in the future, no Patrick Swayze, but I love, I love the angle here. So one thing Kyle didn't ask about, um, and so we've covered kind of location and time in the future. We need to flesh it out a little bit more though. What about right? Everybody cop show there, the car is usually some sort of central point. I'm wondering, is it kind of a future 
hovering pink Caramo. Do you remember that when uh, Sage's teammates uh-huh. did up uh-huh. his Camaro in a pink wrap? <laughs> Is that it? Maybe a 2045 uh, jet-powered hovering thinking, Camaro? I was, thinking, I was thinking more like, you know, it ends up turning out that there were so many Pontiac Aztecs that never got purchased <laughs> that there's like a stockpile in Montana. And so we've got a Pontiac, like there's a Pontiac Aztec and it's kind you know, I'm, I'm the tech guy, but I mean, that was already, I've been branded as a tech guy here. So, um, you what know, do you, how do you modify job. it? I'm like part, I'm part repair man. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Hovercraft is a little out of my. Uh, that might not be as techy. Out of my out of my range. Hybrid. Um, Biofuel. I mean, Aztec. I'm thinking. We've just said screw it. Um, you know, we've got like the environment's totally smoked, one way or the other. Um, maybe in this same General Motors. Um, you know, bunker where they've hidden all of the Aztecs that they said they sold but didn't or something. See, I actually um, think it might be the other way. Like cockroaches in a nuclear apocalypse, Pontiac Aztecs <laughs> are the only things that survive. They're, they're bull- just, they were just sitting out in the plains, right? And couldn't touch them. Not a scratch, not even singed. That would be That would be like the worst irony ever. If that was actually like, oh my god, we found a bunch of cars, but they're <laughs> Pontiac, they're all Pontiac Aztecs. Um, I just go. I mean, I think I could see myself if this was actually happening. I mean, now that I'm putting myself in my you know shoes here, like I just get super weird on like GM mashups. Like, is there a Fiero somewhere? I'm mashing a you know this thing's got a weird mid-engine you know Fiero V. I've made a I've made a you know, Pontiac Aztec Fiero kit car, you know, Holy crap. um, I think that's, I'm definitely going down some kind of weird. I'll get, yeah. I so get super weird on the, on the GM mashups here. As a guy know. with the primal numbers and the livery and the logo and historical, is there some sort of like carryover livery you put on it? You know, do we bring in the Pontiac GTO, like the judge? type you know livery on it Ooh. as well because of course <laughs> that would be epic because sage could totally just be like the judge like that could be his oh. that could be his kind of like you know moniker full um, wrap around old school reflective sunglasses right uh you got now is he yeah. all tatted up by that now he never wears a shirt in the show right like it's always just yeah. fully pumped up and oiled down i don't think so i think he's just i think he's 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 clean you know you got to get all, you got to get all the, you know, got to reflect right off everything, you know. Is there an area that that JR and the Sage specializes in, right? I know we said buddy cop, but is it, you know, is it theft? Is it, are you guys murder police? Uh, What, what are you guys, what, what's your thing? What's the thing that you guys are cracking down on in this post-apocalyptic Montana of 2045? In the judge. <laughs> I think I'm thinking that, you know, based on our, based on our storyline now, we're probably just the protectors of all of the Aztecs, Ooh. you know, like the Pontiac Aztec has now become the 
hottest global commodity, you know, on the face of the planet because it's the only vehicle that's left. And since um, you're a little OCD, all the remaining ones have been modded to be Aztec Fieros. So they're like super <laughs> rare, more valuable than water, anything else. And so just gangs of people. All the, they're, they're, all, they're, all my, they're all in my favorite liveries. So this is like the state it's, it's, of it's Dr. The Moreau. Fleet, it's, the fl- it's the fleet of ex-great livery. It's, yeah, this is, this is, I mean, yeah, this is totally like my, um, dystopian dream. You know, this is, yeah, this is, this is my Mona Lisa right here. Oh my here. God. Your Mona Lisa. Oh, wow. So we got to close with the, the final question posed here by our man, Kyle Donnelly, who performs the theme song, JR, what, and do you have any idea what the theme song is kind of like? A genre of music? I don't know. I mean, I have to think like what's what's going to come. I mean, everything's going to be retro, right? So like, what's going to come back into style in Montana? A post-apocalyptic twenty forty-five. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking that I've got an idea, but I don't want to get ahead of yours. I mean, I was just going to say, you know. I bet you, you know, knowing Sage a little bit, you know, and this is, you know, he's, he's got, you know, he's got kind of some, some, got a little country in him, maybe, maybe got a little, I don't know, I think we, we might, we might just end up with like some throwback T-Swift or something. I think that's probably, probably where we end up, you know, everything's pretty screwed up at this point Yeah. in 2045 after the, you know, we might need a little, uh. We might need a little, um, you know, upbeat. Maybe she's still there. Maybe she's a part of the, you know, the last settlement. She can write us something fresh. See, uh, I've got a, I've got an alternate ending for you here, and this would okay. be something you created as the tech guy in Jr. <laughs> and the Sage, taking some of those cast-off, unused Fiero parts you have built a robotic gym neighbors and we have you have a robotic gym neighbors built out of cast off Pontiac parts who I don't know if it's back home again in Indiana, but he sings things from your past sages past could be Indianapolis 500 type favorites. I'm just thinking, I don't know if he's a protector. I could definitely dig that. But I think there's at least a button you push on your robotic Pontiac Jim Neighbors where he does sing back home in Indiana. And maybe that's the thing that just really confuses all the marauders coming in to try and steal your Pontiac I think, Aztec yeah, Fiero. I mean, I can definitely, I feel like we've got Jim is, is like our, you know, monument, you know, of just light and goodness but he's also, you know, then, you know, then when he, you know, for sure, at some part of his theme song, he's, you know, red eyes, full protector of, you know, warning, warning beacon to anybody trying to get to my Aztec Fieros. Terminator T-1000 of post-apocalyptic Montana. Oh, that is, uh, 
That is awesome. I think we got a show. Now, who are we selling this to? And who, well, so who are we paying? Because no one's going to pay for it. Yeah. Holy crap. All I can tell you, Kyle, thank you, man. This was the perfect closing. And I think on future episodes where you join That's us, JR, we're going to have to rely on Kyle to give us some more. You know, we got the buddy cop genre done. Um, I don't know. Maybe the next one will be the Fresh Prince. Uh, you know, we can pick different TV and movie genres. Uh, we're going to have to work through because this might have been the most fun thing I've done all week. Jay Hildebrand, you are uh, you're a good, good egg man. Thank you for taking way more time than anticipated. Uh, some laughs, a lot of thoughts and introspection here on our little week in IndyCar guest episode brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. <laughs>